my friends, and welcome again to the Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points us to Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thank you for joining me, friends. This is our third episode looking at the book of Kings. That's, of course, first and second Kings. And so here is our third theme for consideration. The author of Kings measured kingdom success in the light of past covenants. So we're talking about the evaluation of the kings of Israel and Judah. And the book uses a formulaic pattern for evaluating these men. We're told when the king came to the throne, who was reigning in the other kingdom, whether it's Judah or Israel at that time, how long they reigned, in what capital they reigned, and most importantly of all, their religious policy. For the kings of the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, the question was, did they follow the pattern of Jeroboam? Now, Jeroboam was the first king of the northern kingdom. He is the one who built the golden calf altars in the north and the south of Israel and told the people to go and worship there instead of going and worshiping the true God in Israel. So Jeroboam's pattern was maximizing idolatry and minimizing Yahweh's presence in Israel. It sounds a little bit something like this. In 1 Kings 16, 25-26, we read, Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. So that's the northern kings. Now, as you remember from our previous episode, there were 20 kings in the north, and all 20 of them followed the pattern of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Zero for 20, not a faithful king among them. For the kings of Judah, the southern kingdom, and these are all kings who descend from David, the question was, was he faithful like David? Did he remove the high places, the idolatrous shrines where people would go and worship false gods? Did he call attention to God's presence in Jerusalem by taking care of the temple and calling people to worship at the temple? And for the southern kingdom, 20 kings, 8 out of 20 were faithful. 8 out of 20. It's better than 0 out of 20, but it's certainly not perfection. It sounds a little bit something like this. 1 Kings 15, 1 through 6. Now in the 18th year of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Abishalom. And he walked in all the sins that his father did before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. One of the author's main goals was to evaluate each king as good or bad, depending on their commitment to the covenant that Yahweh made with Israel. And this is one of the Bible's most distinct qualities. For other ancient cultures, histories were just royal propaganda pieces, and only good news was recorded for posterity. The author and editor of Kings, however, is not writing to glorify humans. Their goal was to display the supremacy of Yahweh above all human kings. Kings is not a history book per se. It's a theological evaluation of every king and how they responded to Yahweh and his purposes. And since every king's evaluation is based on their loyalty to the covenant, the book spends a lot of time establishing the connections between the covenants. So we're going to look here at the covenantal history of kings. Now, there are three big covenants that the Old Testament is going to constantly remind us of, and that's the covenant with Abraham, David, and with the nation of Israel. And 
spoiler alert, the the covenant that God made with Moses or through Moses at Mount Sinai with Israel, that's going to be the major covenant. But the author of Kings certainly wants to remind you and show you how the covenant with Abraham and David is being fleshed out during this time period. For example, Kings opens by showing Israel under King Solomon's reign, enjoying the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. The blessings of the Abrahamic covenant included things like being a massive nation. As it says in 1 Kings 4.20, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. And this is exactly what God promised in Genesis 22.17, where he says to Abraham, I will bless you and multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore. They're living in their land. 1 Kings 4.21, Solomon ruled over the kingdoms from the Euphrates, that's off in the east, to the land of the Philistines, that's the Mediterranean coast, and to the border of Egypt. In Genesis 15.18, God says to Abraham, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt, that's the Nile, to the great river, the river Euphrates. They're being ruled by kings. 1 Kings 4.1, King Solomon is king over all Israel. Genesis 17, 6, God says to Abraham, I'll make you fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And they are blessing their neighbors. 1 Kings 4, 34, people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. And this is the climax of the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the covenant God made with Abraham is still operative during this time period. The people are enjoying the blessings, and the same is true for the Davidic covenant. The author of Kings stresses how the covenant promise to David gets renewed with Solomon and passed down through David's family line. In 1 Kings 2.4, we read this, The Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. These are David's parting words to his son Solomon before David dies and Solomon takes the throne. And David is referencing back to the promise that God made in 2 Samuel 7, verses 14 and 15, where God says to David, I will be to him, to your offspring, a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. The reason is you read through Kings and you see the kings from the line of David become just as wicked, if not more so, than the kings in the northern kingdom. The reason that the Davidic dynasty endures is because God promised David. When God is speaking to Jeroboam and telling him about his plan to take away the kingdom from Solomon's son Rehoboam and give it to him, he says, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. As we move and read through, as I mentioned before, the kings of Judah are judged on whether or not they are like David. And the very last paragraph in the book the release of King Jehoiachin, one of the great, 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 you know, great to how many power grandsons of King David, it shows him being released from prison by the king of Babylon. And this story is added to show that David's line continues and that the hope of Israel, their future hope, is tied up with the kingdom promises made to David. So just like the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant with David is still operative. It's still working its way through the nation of Israel. But the primary echo is the echo of the Mosaic or Old Covenant. So though the covenants with Abraham and David are stressed, 
It's the Mosaic Covenant that gives us the primary lens for understanding the book of Kings. Now, this connection is made explicit when Solomon is told by David to reign under Yahweh's leadership. 1 Kings 2.3, David says to his son, Keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses. Now, these words of David should remind us of Deuteronomy 17. The king of Israel is to be a man of the book. The human king over the nation of Israel is not meant to replace Yahweh. This king is meant to represent Yahweh before the people. And the king is supposed to show the people of Israel what it means to have Yahweh at the center of your life. Deuteronomy 17 verses 18 and 19 say this, When he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. So the author of Kings is telling you to read this book, to evaluate these men, to think about these events in light of the Mosaic Covenant. When Solomon prays to dedicate the temple, his prayer is full of allusions to the blessings and curses of the Mosaic Covenant that we read in Deuteronomy 28. At the very end of the book, when Josiah, the last and greatest king of Judah, finds the lost book of the law, what he finds is Deuteronomy, and he leads the nation in a covenant reform movement. And when Josiah dies, these are the parting words for him. 2 Kings 23, 25, before Josiah, there was no king like him who turned the Lord with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his might, according to all the law of Moses nor did any like him arise after him. And that, of course, should remind us of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The tragedy of Judah is that the king who best lived out this command before Jesus died as a young man, and he came to the throne after it was already too late for the nation of Judah. One final way the book emphasized the connection with the Mosaic Covenant is allusions to the breaking of the, uh, shall we call, forbidden four of Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 17. It says this, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So the forbidden four, one, the king must not be a foreigner. Two, the king must not acquire many horses. Now, to acquire a large number of horses and chariots, this is God telling the kings of Israel are not to engage in militarism, to be needlessly aggressive and expansive like the kingdoms of Babylon and Assyria. Third, the king must not acquire many wives for himself. And this is, yes, a warning against lust, but even more importantly, a warning against idolatry. And by entering into marriage alliances with different nations for security instead of trusting in God. And fourth, the king must not acquire much gold. And this is warning the kings of Israel about materialism. Now, the first rule was never broken. Every single king of Israel and Judah was an Israelite. But kings shows us how often 
these 40 kings, 20 from the north and 20 from the south, break rules two through four. We'll just look at two kings to prove the point. We'll look at Solomon and Ahab. Now, we don't read about Solomon fighting battles, but we do read this in 1 Kings 10, 26. Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And to be even more kind of shocking, though it says specifically, don't go to Egypt to get a lot of horses for yourself. That's exactly what 1 Kings says Solomon did. He bought these horses and chariots from Egypt. Solomon married many foreign women with disastrous result. As we read about in 1 Kings 11, 1 through 8, he married Moabite women, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonian, and Hittite women. And he built shrines and altars for all of them to worship their gods. And it says, when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Solomon abuses his God-given wealth. The wealth of Solomon, God says in 1 Kings 3.13, is a gift from him. But Solomon uses his wealth and becomes greedy and power hungry and forces Israelites into work gangs and basically works them like slaves to build his building projects, including, shockingly enough, religious structures for pagan use. This is in 1 Kings 11, 7 through 8. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab. Friends, we can be certain that Solomon was not out there, you know, with the, the mortar and the, the hammer and chisel shaping the bricks and laying it all down. He's making Israelites build shrines to other gods. And this same tale is retold in the story of Ahab, perhaps the most famous king of the northern kingdom. Ahab is actually mentioned in sources outside of the Bible. He was a pretty well-known general in his day. But both his successes and failures are attributed to Yahweh. It was Ahab's marriage to Jezebel, a Phoenician princess who worshipped Baal, that brought about his ruin. It says in 1 Kings 16.31 that it was Jezebel who introduced Baal worship to Israel. Up until this point, the people of Israel had been worshipping Yahweh, but they'd been worshipping him by means of idols. When Jezebel comes on the scene, they abandon the worship of Yahweh altogether and just begin to worship foreign gods. It's Jezebel who incites the murder of Yahweh's prophets. We read about in 1 Kings 18. It's Jezebel who seeks out and persecutes Elijah, one of the last of God's prophets during this time. She has innocent people murdered out of greed, as we talked about with the uh, vineyard of Naboth that Ahab wants, and Jezebel has Naboth murdered to get it for her husband. Just to kind of show you the contrast, the, the subtle way uh, the Bible will sort of make these points. We're told in 1 Kings 10, 18 through 20, that Solomon had an ivory throne. Very expensive, very ornate, very over-the-top possession for a king to have. But we're told in 1 Kings 22 that Ahab had an ivory palace. So this is a wealthy man. This is a powerful general. But he worships other gods. And he is judged harshly. Now, all of these temptations that these Israelite kings would have faced, placing your faith in your strength, placing your faith in the alliances of other people, placing your faith in money, these same temptations are with us today. But I think it's instructive for us to note that within a few years of Solomon's death, Egypt has invaded and carried away all of the gold that Solomon had stored up, and it's just gone. And friends, we must beware the temptation to find meaning and security apart from God. We might find it for a moment, but they will not last, and neither will those who hope in them. 
Psalm 37, 14 and 15 says this, The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword, the wicked's sword, shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. And then Psalm 49, 16 and 17, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. So this understanding of the connection between the covenant and the kings helps us understand the demise and destruction of Israel. It's the covenant failure of the kings of Israel and Judah that leads them into exile. And remember, this book was written to answer the question being asked by Israelites sitting in Babylonian exile. If we're God's people, how do we end up in exile? And the answer is, you broke the covenant. Solomon's failures with marrying these foreign women, with trusting in military strength or materialism, this is a breach of the covenant. The exile is caused by breaking the covenant. As it says in 2 Kings 18, 11 through 12, the king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Hala and on the Haber, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened nor obeyed. By the end of the book, the reign of Solomon is a distant memory. The number of the people has been greatly reduced. There's just a few handfuls. They're no longer in the land. Most of them are in exile. They're poor, and the blessings have been removed. So how is God going to keep his promise? There is a covenant crisis going on. How is God going to keep the promises to Adam and Eve in the garden and to Abraham? How's he going to keep the promise to David? This is a huge problem. But in the midst of this crisis, it's become very clear there's no doubt as to which party, God and Israel, is the guilty one. It is the sustained rebellion of the people, initiated and led by their kings, that brought about their exile from the land. And from a human perspective, all hope is lost. But we don't want to read this book from a human perspective. We want to read it from God's perspective. And Lord willing, the next time we come together, we're going to see how this book, full of doom and gloom as it is, also contains the seeds of kingdom restoration hope. But for now, take them and read, my friends. God bless. 